Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Zeke Fox, an award-winning investigative reporter for Bloomberg, who spent more than a decade scrutinizing the dealings on Wall Street. His latest book turns his experiences and skills as a financial journalist to the world of cryptocurrencies. Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Ride and Staggering Fall, seeks to understand how digital currencies went mainstream, the role of high-profile figures like Samuel Bankman-Fried, and the cost and consequences of their marked decline. I'm grateful to speak with him about the remarkable story and the lessons for investors, policymakers, and the rest of us. Zeke, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks a lot for having me on. I want to start, if it's okay, with some basic facts and vocabulary for me and listeners. What are cryptocurrencies? How many are there? And what are the key similarities and differences between some of the big ones? I started off on this journey, which turned into like a two-year trip down the rabbit hole of crypto, much like, you know, everyone else. I was kind of like curious about crypto, or I don't even want to say I was curious about crypto. I was hearing a lot about crypto, whether I liked it or not. There was like Dogecoin, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, Smooth Love Potions, and I was not someone who this is where we're talking like 2020. It's the pandemic. We're all in lockdown. People are super bored. They're on Robinhood. They're trading like GameStop, AMC stock. And I came at this because not because I was a real expert on all these things, but because a friend of mine started texting me about Dogecoin. And this is like, is one of these really impenetrable things. It's a cryptocurrency that's a picture of a Shibu Inu dog and it doesn't do anything. It's not like this isn't some like this isn't like AI where it's like this is some sort of futuristic technology. It's just a coin that's named after a dog. And the idea was that it was kind of silly and you could buy it and it would go up. So people were really buying all these coins. They were going up. They were making tons of money. And I didn't really understand, like, I didn't know the answers to these questions. Like, why would people buy it? What is the point of these currencies? And I decided that, like, you know what? Even though I was kind of turned off on the subject at first, so many people were getting involved. Like, my friends were getting rich or making big money. Like, people were becoming billionaires. I just wanted to get to the bottom of it. So, like, asking those very basic questions ended up taking me on, on this two year trip. And by the end of it, I was like 
there with Sam Bankman Freed at his penthouse in the Bahamas just before the cops showed up. So it was, those are like dangerous questions to ask. <laughs> but what I will say is that once I started digging in, I realized that, yes, like there are some complicated parts of cryptocurrencies, but the gist of it is really not so hard. It's essentially like you hear a lot about the blockchain. That's basically a database. And these a database, you can think of like a spreadsheet in Microsoft Excel. And it's just keeping track of like all the people who have money in column A. And then column B is like how much money that they have. And I realized like that's sort of what a bank does. It's just keeping this list of people and how much money they have. And in crypto, it's not like one central bank that's keeping this list. There's like a new system where this list is kept on like everyone's computer, kind of like Google Sheets. And in column A, it still has everybody, instead of everybody's names, people have just kind of like a number. So it's almost like a numbered bank account. And in column B, instead of saying like how many dollars or loonies you have, it's like, this is how many you know Cardano tokens you have. And like, there's this whole technological edifice, but the gist of it is just like a new system of keeping track of how much everyone has. And there's these tokens like a Bitcoin or like a one ETH, the currency of Ethereum. It doesn't like really exist in any way except as a number on this like giant spreadsheet. And that's what this whole thing is. And that's what's creating like trillions of dollars of value. It was really once I kind of got the gist of it, it was really uh, wild to see how much had sprung up from this kind of relatively simple concept. As you alluded, the book covers an extraordinary cast of characters in the industry, including a former child actor from the Mighty Ducks movies to the co-creator of the old kids show Inspector Gadget to Samuel Brankman Free himself, who we'll speak more about later. Talk about these people, Zeke. What drew them to cryptocurrencies? Are there any common characteristic or traits? What, for instance, is the role, if any, of libertarian ideas or effective altruism or other normative or value-based sets of ideas that one seems to frequently find or at least associate with the crypto world? Well, let's take Brock Pierce, the child actor from The Mighty Ducks, as an example. This is somebody who was like very open to new ideas. He had this really insane career where he went from being a actor as a teenager to working at this truly bizarre startup during the dot-com bubble, which you'll have to read about in the book. I, I don't want to even get into that one. To becoming a trader of virtual items in massively multiplayer online games like EverQuest or World of Warcraft. And this was someone who was just like very unafraid of risk, would jump into new things. and. Early on, crypto, Bitcoin, it seemed like this kind of sketchy thing where like that's how you would maybe buy drugs on the internet, like if you didn't know much about it. And you know what? Like that was actually a pretty accurate assessment. Like in the early days, that was one of the main uses of Bitcoin and crypto was buying drugs from Silk Road, like the first darknet market. But this guy, Brock Pierce, who's kind of fancies himself like a internet philosopher, he, for all his faults, he did see that this was an idea that was really powerful that lots of people would like. And what I write about in the book is that in these early days, there were 
Bitcoin was like a bunch of nerds. It was almost like you think of it like uh, like ham radio operators. It's like it's a weird hobby for nerds. And there was this sort of second wave of people around like 2014, at which Brock Pierce was one of the leaders of this, who was like, hey, we could use this. We could kind of commercialize this. We could use this crypto idea and spread it in new directions. And one that he was instrumental in creating was called Tether. And this was the one that I write about a ton in the book. It's a stable coin, which means that instead of having a price that's supposed to go up and make you rich, the price is always supposed to be a dollar because each Tether token is supposed to be backed by $1 in the bank. And this Tether company is one of the main ones I investigated. It's truly bizarre. Like in addition to Pierce, there's a, another one of the key people was a former plastic surgeon. The, they worked with a banker who created Inspector Gadget, as you mentioned. But this simple idea of like a coin that was backed by real money, actually, I realized enabled kind of the growth of the modern cryptocurrency industry. Mm. Because this was like a key way that people were getting real money into this crypto system. And that is the one that I had found like so much of crypto kind of impenetrable, but I'm an experienced investigative reporter. And this Tether one was simple enough that I could wrap my head around it. They were, this company was like, we take your money, we put it in the bank, we give you tokens. And by the time I came around to look into it, they had something like 50 billion in the bank, supposedly, but they weren't saying where it was. So that's kind of the mystery that took me through the story was like, where is this $50 billion? And by the end of the search, I was in Cambodia, like at a compound run by human traffickers. But I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy story. I never could have known at the beginning where the search was going to take me. A key inside the book, as you, as you allude, Zeke, is that cryptocurrencies aren't merely the domain of eccentric tech types or internet philosophers. They're also involved organized crime, human trafficking, and what you describe as, quote, crypto scam compounds, unquote, in parts of Southeast Asia. Talk about this dark side of the crypto world. How have digital assets come to attract criminal elements? And was it, in hindsight, somewhat inevitable? So I feel like the crypto world is discovering or over lessons that the finance, the regular financial world has learned like decades or even centuries ago. And like one of them is that there's this whole system of securities regulation in every country designed to prevent people from just starting companies, making up tons of lies, raising billions of dollars and running away with it. And crypto, a lot of crypto advocates had said like, this was really unnecessary. It's slowing down innovation. Then it turns out that so many crypto companies were scams and had taken advantage of the lack of transparency to raise all this money and run away with it. And the other side of it too is money laundering. Banks face all these regulations about knowing who their customers are, reporting suspicious transactions. And crypto companies, though most will say that they comply with those, they've created this new system where like I was saying, if you go back to those two column lists, I've got like a, you know, let's say I'm entry number 3,040, 
five. And it says in the spreadsheet that I've got 1 million tethers. I can send those to you and they, my number in the spreadsheet will go down by a million. Your number in the spreadsheet will go up and no company has to know our name. It's totally anonymous. This, there's been sort of this new talk of like crypto being trackable because in some ways these transactions are public, but they're pseudonymous. They're not associated with our names. And you've created like a system where money can be moved from like one account to another without being associated with anyone. And like you said, kind of unsurprisingly, a lot of I found that a lot of criminals are, are taking advantage of this. And one area where it seems to have become a big problem is that scammers are tricking people in wealthier countries. They run these like the one that I looked into most in the book was a it's called pig butchering. And it's a scam where a stranger will just send you a text message, befriend you, convince you that they're some sort of great trader and that they'll teach you their secrets and then get you to send them lots of money using crypto. And then once they've figured they've got as much as you're going to send, they just kind of run off with it. And it's something that would never, uh, if, if they used a bank account, they'd have to give you a name associated with that. They use like a visa card. You could complain to visa. Like scams do happen in the traditional system, but with crypto, it's like supercharged. It's much easier. And the wild part of this particular scam is that the scammers themselves are often based in Southeast Asia and they are victims of human trafficking. Like it's kind of, it sounds like some sort of QAnon conspiracy theory, but like there are whole office towers that are just filled with floor after floor of people who've been lured to like Southwestern Cambodia or Myanmar and told that they've got to run scams or under threat of like beatings, torture, underperformers can be sold to like different scam compounds. The UN just came out with, with a report saying that more than 100,000 people may be uh, trapped this way. Yeah, it's really wild. And in my opinion, totally facilitated by the anonymous transfers that crypto makes possible. We'll come back to that later in the conversation. But I want to turn now to the mainstreaming of cryptocurrencies in 2021. Why then? What happened to bring them into the world of popular investing? So interest rates were down to, you know, near zero in a lot of countries, which meant that, you know, it's easy to borrow money at low rates, that other investments were not very appealing. A lot of people were getting stimulus checks and they're stuck at home. They're bored. Like gambling's kind of fun. And I don't know, it's sort of like a perfect storm where people are bored. They've got some money and these there were plenty of people who were coming up with these sort of appealing new crypto ideas for people to to invest in. One that I explored was around that time, there was a this crypto game that had kind of been kicking around called Axie Infinity. And it looked kind of like, like a Pokemon type game. But what made it crypto was that you had to buy your Pokemon. They were called Axies. And then in battles, you could win tokens called smooth love potions and this took off in the philippines it became like a national craze people started it was starting to be promoted as like a new way to make money like with a straight face crypto guys would say like this is the we've created the future of work 
this is a new way that people around the globe are going to like earn their livelihood. But people in in that country, people are out of work. Like if you were driving like a motorcycle taxi, there were no one was going anywhere. So they this idea that somehow there was this new kind of magic internet money that could and that for a time did actually work. Like you people were playing this game, they're earning smooth love potions. They're selling them and they're buying food. They're building a second floor in their house. They're upgrading their motorcycle. So yeah, people were desperate. And this for a, for a while, this kind of bubble logic like did work. Like once the, the number, that's where the title of the book comes from, a number go up. It's like a became sort of a mantra with Bitcoin in particular, where they'd say like, people would say, well, why does a Bitcoin why does it cost 40,000? Why is it going to why would it go up from here? And they'd be like, "Well, it has been going up. That's going to attract more interest. That'll make it go up more. Then even more people will like it. Soon like the big hedge funds will come in, even more money. Soon it's going to be at like a million." And like it sounds kind of crazy now and like inevitable that it was going to it wasn't going to work out, but for a time the numbers were all going up so high that like even the craziest ideas seemed plausible. And there was this really strong feeling of, you know, missing out. Like I, when I saw my friends making money on crypto, even though I was pretty skeptical, I, I wasn't thinking that, you know, Dogecoin was going to become the future of finance. And I was skeptical <laughs> that even like a joke about dogs could attract lots of investors. But when I saw the price was going up and people were making lots of money, like I felt it too. I was like, maybe I should get in on this. So I... It seems kind of silly, but I think that that kind of logic, like really the bubble just sort of fed on itself and like grew and grew. It was truly crazy to see. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, The Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. Let me ask about a couple of contingent factors. What role did the pandemic play in your mind? And talk about the role of ideology, Zeke. What would you say to the notion that the crypto movement in some ways shot through with a sort of radical utopian ideal, which many found attractive. Definitely the crypto movement's heavy on libertarians. And I guess there is something kind of idealistic about that, where they say that the government's getting in the way, the government is screwing up the financial system through regulation. And if like people are just free to do what they want, they will create an improvement on the US dollar or a new kind of replacement for the bank and freed from all these rules. It's going to be more honest. It's going to 
include poor people. Like that would that became a big talking point. We're going to help the unbanked. But I think what the last couple of years have shown is that, like I said, it, lessons that we've learned before in the traditional financial system, that if you're free from the scrutiny of regulators, that's going to make you more likely to run scams. That's going to let you create a cryptocurrency exchange, make it seem super legit, and then gamble everyone's money away when it's uh, out of sight. And now it seems like the lesson's pretty clear that cryptocurrencies do need to be regulated, that securities laws and transparency are helpful for investors, that like money laundering rules are there for a reason. But yeah, for a time, it was like, hey, we're all in it together. There was also this big sense of community where it was like, that was a big part of the pitch where it was like, we're we're creating like a new community. If you can be part of it, you can, that was big with NFTs, the like digital art. It was like, you can be part of the future. You're getting in early. I would not underestimate the role of Twitter. Like the crypto guys are in girls are on Twitter all day long, tweeting about how great crypto is. Uh, and that brings in like a lot of new people. It was just like this a bubble in like both senses of the words, like a financial bubble, but also like a bubble of this crypto mindset. Like you go to these conferences and you hear people saying like the craziest things and there'd be thousands and thousands of people there just receiving it with a total straight face. Like I was at one, the first one I went to, someone, they played a videotaped announcement by the president of El Salvador who said he was going to make Bitcoin an official currency in the country. And there was like a Bitcoin guy on stage helping make this announcement. He was in literal tears. He was like sobbing as he announced this. And I'm I'm in the audience like, what is going on? What like first of all, what is what do the people of El Salvador want with Bitcoin? Like how the idea that this would somehow help them just seem bizarre. Why is this guy crying? But the audience is just like some of the I looked around like I saw other people crying. Like they're just such strong believers that they see all of this as anything is possible. But I, I write about in the book again and again. I would ask these people what's really happening in the real world? Like, are you solving problems? Are people using your cryptocurrency? I even went to El Salvador to check out what was going on there because it it continued to be like a big talking point for Bitcoiners, especially like, wow, look at what's happening in El Salvador. I went down there, even though the government had passed a law that all businesses had to accept Bitcoin, very few people were using it. I had trouble even... Lots of businesses would tell me they wouldn't accept it. Even the ones who did, they seemed like kind of reluctant. Like they would, they'd have to go get the manager and the manager would be like, oh, do you really want me to? I'll get out like the special computer, uh, the special like point of sale terminal. It was just like, it was actually even hard to report on because like so little was going on. Like to hear the Bitcoiners talk about it, they were like, Bitcoin saving El Salvador. And you go there and it just like wasn't a thing at all. And... Yeah, I just found this again and again where I would like, I felt like I'd pull back the curtain on some kind of crypto experiment and just see that there was nothing behind the curtain. Like there was nothing going on. You were working on the book in real time as the industry faced various developments, including the collapse of FTX and criminal charges ultimately brought against Samuel Bankman-Fried. I went back and read some of the old reporting you did on him and others. 
You wrote as far back as April 2022 that Bankman Freed seemed motivated by, quote, getting rich quick, unquote. Yet you've also said that you, quote, missed a lot of red flags, unquote. How early did you have a sense that there were these inherent issues in cryptocurrencies? Or did you find yourself swayed by the industry's charismatic narrative? So I was always pretty skeptical of cryptocurrencies. But when I met Sam Bankman-Fried, it was, uh, we met first in 2021 in Miami. And he's like this, he's super nerdy. He's got this big mop of curly hair. He's like, he's in town to rename the Miami Heats arena after his company. He's 29 years old. He's worth like $20 billion. And it was hard not to be impressed. He, and what really got to me was he told me, you brought up effective altruism before. He told me that he had only gotten rich in order to give it the money away, which sounds like, okay, lots of rich people say that they're going to give money away. But like I spoke to people from his past when he was a teenager, he's at MIT. He's giving out pamphlets promoting like PETA, like he's a vegan activist. He meets this philosopher, the founder of the effective altruism movement, uh, Will McCaskill, who says, hey, like, you're pretty smart. You're good at math. Anybody can give out pamphlets. How about you like to become a trader and get real rich? Then you could hire lots of people to give out pamphlets. And here I was sitting with him. It hadn't even been a decade. He's now one of the richest people in the world. So even though I, th I was skeptical of that Dogecoin was the future of finance, I was I found this pitch like fascinating this uh, the story of bankman fried and how why he'd gotten rich i found that more interesting than looking at like his company when in hindsight i should have been like you know asking more questions about about ftx like clearly but i think that actually he i write about this in the book in one of our first conversations we talked about this because he had this philosophy that he if you think that you are getting rich in order to do good, it can become like a justification for almost anything. It's like, I'm, because what, because what I saw it as is FTX was like a casino offshore where you could gamble on all these coins or whatever. And there were a lot of other companies like this. And I felt like it was maybe a little un, if he says he's trying to do good for the world, well, gambling can be bad for a lot of people. A lot of people will lose their money. And I asked him about that, like, hey, aren't you, potentially hurting a lot of people by encouraging them to gamble their savings on like all these random coins. And he was kind of like evasive on that question. And then I also said like, Hey, by your philosophy, couldn't we justify like almost anything? Like what if you just ran like a giant scam and made billions of dollars? And then one of the effective altruists approved causes in the early years was buying bed nets for people in Africa to prevent malaria. I was, you know, you could, I was saying to him, you could, you got all this credibility. You could run like a big crypto scam, you get billions of dollars, you could buy tons of bed nets. Wouldn't that be like net net positive for the world by your logic? And when I asked him that, he had this funny way of like, he humor any question. He, it was impossible to offend him. He, unlike a lot of executives you talk to, but he said, hey, something along the lines of like, I could make more money running an honest business. Like there's some limit to how much you could make on a, on a scam. 
F FTX could be like a giant company. In the long run, I could make like hundreds of billions of dollars and do that much more good for the world, which seemed kind of logical at the time. But as I write, one thing that I missed was like, if you run a scam, you don't think you're going to get caught. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I think ultimately this philosophy that of effective altruism that he was getting rich in order to do good did justify like any sort of risk taking or even like unethical things. I feel like he, he really twisted it. You opened the book with a great line from him, quote, I'm not going to lie. This was a lie, unquote. Talk about your interactions. Why do you think he sought you out for an exclusive interview soon after FTX's collapse? So he was somebody who was very accessible. I think that was why he was so successful with the media. It didn't seem like he paid any like special attention to me or other reporters. It was more that like he'd pick up the phone. So when things were going well, I called up his uh, representative and said, hey, like I want to come to the Bahamas and write a story about him. And I'm going to need to sit next to him for a couple of days and see how see him at work. And they were just like, sure. And I sat there and he's answering emails from like important people. He's doing he's on Slack, like managing his company. He's pulling up spreadsheets that supposedly show his results. Stuff that like most executives would never let you see. And I mean, usually you deal with like a CEO, they've got like all these representatives in the room. They're very careful with what they say. He didn't really have any of that. And at the end, it was kind of similar. Like I, I sent him a message. FTX had failed. There was this kind of open question of what had happened. I mean, to me, it looked very clearly like fraud, but he had yet to be arrested. He was kind of in limbo. And I was like, hey, why don't you tell me your side of it? Like, I'm, I'm curious what happened. And he said, Sure. And I said, all right, I'll be in the Bahamas tomorrow. Then it took like a couple more days to work <laughs> it out to get invited to talk to him at his house. But basically what I saw was like that. And I had no idea what to expect. It was very, um, it was very strange. I'm going to, this is somebody who was like, essentially like it was clear that his life was ruined. Like this company had failed. He was potentially facing criminal charges. Like things looked terrible. And I wasn't sure what I would get when I when I went to visit him. But what I saw was like, he seemed almost exactly the same as the first time I met him. And he had this strange way of being like, still like, very uh, seemingly open, seemingly like willing to talk about anything. And I did ask myself, like, why is this guy doing this? Like, why is he talking to a reporter? He could be, you know, anything he say could could be fodder for a criminal case in the future. But I realized like, Talking to the press had gotten him this far. Talking to everybody, creating this public persona that he was like the boy genius of crypto, the only honest guy in the market. That's part of what made him so successful. And it wasn't that illogical for him to think, okay, like it worked for me on the way up. Now I'm in trouble. Maybe I can talk my way out of it. Yes. But I don't think it's looking so likely that he'll be able to now. What's your final impression of him? Is he a run-of-the-mill financial scammer, or is he delusional, or did he merely lose control of the business as it grew beyond his capacity and experience? I think that he's someone who, him and his lieutenants there, saw themselves as like the heroes 
of their own sci-fi movie. Like they, I talked to someone who had spent the summer working with them just before the failure was like, these guys were obsessed with essentially like killer robots, like out of control AI. And they're talking about like, how are we going to save the world from these, from like a rogue AI and prevent like a Terminator type scenario. And they really thought that with their billions that they would be able to do things like this. Like there was a real chance that they might have a huge impact on like the course of humanity's future. And compared to that, when they were faced with like, without getting all into all the details, essentially it, it became, they'd taken crazy gambles. And there was a time when it really looked like they should have come clean and just been like, we've failed. Like the company's failed, the money's gone. And they faced with that choice. I think that they were like, let's roll the dice. We can make it back. We're geniuses and think of all the good we're going to do in the future. So that's just like, that's kind of my take on it. But it, I don't see them as some, as like, I don't think his public persona was like a total put on, but I do think that this belief in his own exceptionalism led him to take really make bad decisions. To zone out a bit to the sudden collapse in 2022, not just at FTX, but more broadly. Talk a bit about what happened and how is the story of Tether a precursor to these broader industry-wide issues? So I kept looking into this Tether mystery. Tether was just getting bigger and bigger, and it was really unclear where they were keeping their money. But as that, that just got me like sucked into this whole crypto world. And I realized that there were other companies that were like even more like I thought there I could I'd never see a company with more red flags than Tether. But like, no, they were topped immediately by say Celsius, which is another one that famously failed. And these companies all had business, a lot of them had business plans that just didn't make sense. Like they would say that they're paying huge interest rates, but they couldn't really explain how they made any money. And so for a lot of the time that I was looking into the industry for the book, I was just wondering, like, how do these companies make money? Their explanations don't make sense. And it turned out like they didn't have a good plan for making money. And in the summer of 2022, one of these companies that really got huge, it was called Terra Luna. It honestly, it never made sense how it made any money, but it got to have something like crazy number, like $50 billion. And unclear what really started like its collapse. But once people started trading these tokens in for real money, there was sort of like a rush to get out. And it's even quicker that it all went up. The numbers went like way back down. And these companies just started toppling like one after another. And it just became clear how little there was supporting this this giant ecosystem. Like there was not, you know, like if you if you buy the crypto people, a lot of them will say, like, listen, like the stock market all a scam too. And it's like, yeah, like there's scams on the stock market, but like Apple, they make iPhones. Like the the price may of Apple stock may like go up and down. But at some point, this is like a real business that's making tons of iPhones. It makes profits. When you buy a share of Apple, like you're getting you're going to get a little bit of money whenever they make sell an iPhone. And these crypto companies, like a lot of them don't do anything in the real world. Like people weren't using the tokens for anything. So there's really no floor. Once the numbers started going down, 
then there's just a rush to get out and there wasn't any like inherent value that was going to keep the tokens from going down to like near zero so yeah it was uh it all unraveled like pretty quickly last year a penultimate question what are the public policy takeaways from your research what should regulators be doing to bring greater accountability and transparency to the industry so the authorities seem to be like, like just catching up now and bringing cases based on this last crypto bubble. I mean, people forget, but there was a big crypto bubble in 2018, 2017. And in the US, regulators are still bringing cases from that bubble. It's like the it's going to take them until the statute of limitations run out to bring cases in in this one. It's just like the I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it, you know, it's like the stores being looted. It's going to take a long time to like go through the security camera footage and figure out like each person who who stole something. But still, like each time you lie to investors, like that's a crime. I'm more in the camp that the existing laws cover a lot of the like misbehavior that that was seen, and it's just going to take the regulators a long time to sort out what happened and who's to blame. Last question. Based on your work on the book, what do you think the future of cryptocurrencies will be? I did not set out to give people advice about investing, but if you read Number Go Up, hopefully by the end, you'll realize that the title is like kind of a joke and that the numbers have gone down. And absent some giant innovation and some new reason, some new use for crypto in the real world, I don't see like, the bubble times are turning. And I actually feel really lucky that I was there for this like two year boom. I think it's one of the craziest times in the history of finance. And I don't think we'll ever see something like this return. So that said, who knows, maybe someone will come up with uh, some sort of good cryptocurrency in the future. Well, for those insights and more, listeners should read Number Go Up. Inside Crypto's Wild Ride and Staggering Fall, Zeke Fox, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.